Well, hi, my name is Mikhail, and I also get to serve as one of the pastors here. And truthfully, I am here because um, living the way of Jesus is not a solo enterprise. Today, our scripture reading comes to us from 1 Timothy. And in a moment, we'll stand to read together. Our ushers have Bibles for you. So if you would like to read off of paper, the old-fashioned way, just wave your hand and they will have a Bible for you in English or in Spanish for those of us whose heart language is in Spanish or if you're practicing Spanish. Um, but whatever you like to read on, whether a, a, a device or a book or a screen, it'll be on the wall. Um, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and we will read beginning in um, verse 12 together. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, so we can say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So tonight we begin a six-week journey through the books, these little books, these epistles, these letters that we call First and Second Timothy. For centuries, the church has followed a pattern of texts or a suggested reading and teaching from scripture called the lectionary, which we follow uh, nearly all of the year. And um, during these weeks, uh, beginning today and through the end of October, the lectionary suggests First uh, and Second Timothy as our main readings. And like it happens so often, it seems that the suggested text offered through Centuries of church tradition seem to offer very timely words for our congregation. Several months ago, as um, our pastoral staff, our team of pastors, wrestled with some of the questions that Pastor Chris led us through as a congregation together last Sunday, one of the questions that we kind of stumbled upon or um, had to grapple with was how brave are we willing to be? In the discernment process, there comes a point when you realize that, oh, crap. (laughs) I think we're supposed to be doing something. It might be hard, 
we might never have done it this way before. There might be new challenges and resistance. And, and then we had to ask, well, how brave are we willing to be? And how committed are we going to be to doing the things that we've said that we wanted to do? And what must we do to maintain our identity as we keep growing and grow into it more and more? And are we, as we sat around the table as pastors, are we as pastors, are we as congregation willing to adapt, to take on new responsibilities and challenges in order to do these things? And what will we do when we meet resistance? How will we know resistance when we see it? How will we keep moving forward? Just how brave are we willing to be? And it would seem to us that we are not the first group of pastors nor the first congregation to wrestle with questions like this. In fact, it seems that these are the same kinds of questions that make up the conversation between Paul and Timothy in the letters that we receive. Sometimes when we read names in scripture, people are like faceless entities, a stand-in for anybody else in all of human history, kind of like a generic John Doe. And other times, for some of us, when we read scripture, we hear names like Ruth and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Peter and John and Paul and Mary and Joseph. And these people are not just John Doe. They are larger than life. They are almost like demigod status. And we might forget that they were actually humans. And I think the more we understand who these humans were and just how human they were, uh, the more valuable their words become to us. And I think maybe that's why, beginning in the very earliest of collections of scriptures, First and Second Timothy were right there among them. Unlike any of Paul's other letters, he wrote lots of letters, but almost all to churches. These letters were written to a single pastor of a church. And yet they are instructive not just for pastors, but the whole church. So who were Paul and Timothy, these either obscure or larger-than-life characters to us? Paul was born into a Jewish family that apparently had some money or amount of privilege based on his education and upbringing. He studied in some high circles among some Jewish religious elites and was part of the group known as the Pharisees, not really at the same time uh, as Jesus a few years later, but he was right in the midst of that same group of Pharisees that we hear a lot of Jesus interacting with. Uh, after his conversion, which we'll get to in a few minutes, he became the first Christian missionary sent out of Jewish areas uh, to the Gentile people, all of everybody else. <laughs> he traveled all over the places that we know now as Turkey and Greece, 
He lived in towns with people for long periods of time. He preached all the time, in season and out of season, as one of his phrases says. And he planted churches all across the Roman Empire. And this is actually how he met Timothy and Timothy's family, who were living in the city of Lystra. And we read about them in Acts chapter 13 and 14, if you're interested in some after-service reading. Timothy's father was Greek, uh, a Gentile, but his mother and grandmother were both Jewish who converted into being Christians under Paul's ministry. And Paul mentions Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, as people who were influential not only in Timothy's life, but in the life of the church that Paul pastored. So Timothy himself has a rich heritage. And then after their meeting and getting to know one another, Paul noticed things in Timothy that were unique. He had gifts. He had a calling. He had something that Paul um, saw and recognized and affirmed and then began to invite him to exercise more and more. Paul and Timothy worked closely together for around 20 years. And Paul's trust in Timothy, although he was much younger, proved Paul's care, or Timothy's character by what he was invited to do. His name shows up all over the place in what Paul writes to other churches in Romans and Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and Philippians and Philemon. He accompanied Paul on multiple missionary journeys, including his final and fateful trip to Jerusalem. And Paul often sent Timothy to deliver some of the letters that he wrote to other churches or, or be his kind of ambassador saying, this is what Paul says to you now. They were trusted companions, co-workers. And he even spent time Timothy spent time with Paul in his first two years of prison. Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved son or his true child in the faith. Paul who never married and had children of his own. And so when Paul was writing these letters that we have of First and Second Timothy to Timothy, it was toward the end of Paul's life, some of the final things that we have from him. He was in prison in Rome at the time, hoping but not knowing if or when he would be released. And on this side of history, we now know that he would not be. Christian tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded not long after these letters were written by the kind of neurotic and evil emperor Nero in Rome. But by this time, Pastor Timothy was pastoring his own congregation, um, in the church of Ephesus, several years, maybe a decade or more before, Paul had started that church in Ephesus and had written to the church in the book that we know as Ephesians. And at the time of writing, this whole Christian enterprise, this thing called the church, was, was wobbly. It was fragile, Anyone looking in from the outside would not have been able to detect that it would survive. 
And Paul had preached his heart out. He had spent his life preaching throughout the Roman Empire, and now this church that he lovingly and passionately formed, not just a single congregation, but congregations all over the known world, were facing enormous difficulties from within and from without. And so there we have Timothy, a young pastor, taking on the helm of a prominent and also difficult church situation. And, and Paul, his dear friend, is not just concerned that Timothy would do a good job of following his footsteps. This is not just a, now Timothy, you need to follow my legacy and uphold the things that I, you need to, you need to steward well what I've given you. You need to be the same kind of good CEO that I was as the founding CEO of this corporation. He's not concerned that Timothy will do a good job. He's concerned for Timothy. And he is concerned, deeply concerned, for the church that Timothy pastors. These are all people that Paul knows. And he loves deeply. Even as a parent. So when we read between the lines, both in First and Second Timothy and others of Paul's writings, we can tell a little bit about what was going on that Paul had to address. First, the church as a whole was aging. We're several decades in now, and it was growing into its second or even third generation of believers, both people who have been born into Christian families for the first time ever, and also people who are coming in from the outside. Even in our congregation, we've talked about first and second and third generation people, people who came with us right from the beginning, who launched us off to start with, people who came kind of in that second wave of early adopters, and, and maybe some of you, many of you sitting here are third generation who've only arrived since we've been in 8th Street, and we've had to fill you in on the story as you've come along. And these are some of the very same kinds of conversations and people and questions that that church was grappling with. But it made it all the harder because there were preachers who had just gone off the deep end. I'm sure none of us has ever experienced that before. <laughs> just totally an Ephesians thing, right? But these were people who were vocally opposing the message that Paul had preached, the message that this church had been founded upon, and we can almost imagine, you know, this aging older Paul somewhere far away in a Roman prison being discredited. These old-fashioned ideals, too traditional, not hip with the times, he's out of touch, he's long gone, we don't need to do things his way anymore. We've found a better, new way, we have new information, we can improve upon the old. But Paul recognizes that these differences aren't just matters of preference about worship style or semantics. He knows bad theology when he sees it, and he is not afraid to call it out. He knows very, very personally the damage that bad theology can have, and he speaks from that place of personal knowledge and passion. And it seems that there are several different factions, various 
leaders promoting their own truth that lead us to this point. But it seems that the underlying like, um, common denominator of these people is that these false teachers include a tendency towards being elitist or being entirely self-absorbed. So it included things like having an obsession with obscure references in Jewish scripture that you had to know the ins and outs of and adhere to before you were really saved. Or folks who taught that all things pertaining to the body were evil and therefore Jesus probably didn't really have a body. He probably wasn't really fully human and we need to distrust our earthly bodies and our surroundings. Or then there were folks who went to the other extreme and threw out all moral imperatives um, who said, you know, the law, no laws apply to us anymore. And then people on the opposite side of things that said we have to adhere to every amount of Jewish law, every jot and tittle. And then there were some who just stirred up controversial topics because they were smart enough to talk circles around other people and liked to feel important. I can't tell whether it's more funny or more sad that I can see all of these strains in the American church right now. Things don't seem to change a whole lot, I guess. Paul is deeply burdened by these things. And his words to Timothy are written to help his dear younger friend discern how to navigate this stuff. And I don't know about you, but I personally would love a Paul. Because I notice people doing things in ways that I feel are contrary to the gospel all the time. And I wonder, how do I respond to this? Do you just let it roll off your back? Do you fight back? I mean, I feel this tension, even as a pastor, and I feel the need to deserve between the kind of bravery that's needed for faithful, righteous living and then veering off into arrogance or self-righteous elitism. I don't want to be the kind of person that fights fire with fire. I also really don't want to call fire when it's not a fire that you should get concerned about. So how do we know? And as a youngish young pastor myself, I'm really grateful when an experienced uh, set of eyes help me to see what really is a big deal and what is not such a big deal, and then if it is a big deal, how to handle it. But you know what I find most helpful? Not just experienced eyes who tell me what to do, although, believe me, I, I love it when somebody gives me good advice and I can just make it happen. But what I find most helpful is not people pointing me to the right workshop or the right line in the Church of the Nazarene manual or a to-do list that got them through. What I really appreciate, what is most helpful for me, is to hear about people's encounters with God. I want to hear about their mistakes and what they learned through failure and how they made decisions, and how God led them through the past. I want to hear their story. And this is exactly what Paul does for Timothy. But Paul doesn't just reach back into his toolkit of pastor tricks. 
of the last 20 years. He reaches all the way back. And in the passage that we read together today, he goes all the way back to illustrate the way God works and how we know what truth is by retelling his own story of transformation. You know, before Paul was this amazing missionary who planted the church across the world and wrote two-thirds of our New Testament scripture, he was the kind of person that we love to hate. I am incredibly humbled and amazed at his willingness to throw up all of his old stuff at this late point in life. I'm only, you know, 20 years past some of my most ashamed things, and I hardly ever talk about them. And here Paul is. He could have pretended like nobody needed to know who that old guy was years and years ago, and yet he doesn't. That's not the way he treats the story And Timothy and all of us are beneficiaries of it. In the text that we read today, Paul defines his own former way of life in very clear terms. He calls himself a blasphemer, which is an extremely uh, strong word for those who grew up Jewish. That was like the worst of the worst. You know, that's what they crucified Jesus for. That's what he was blamed for, was blaspheming was speaking against God. And yet, um, Paul calls himself that because he spoke against Jesus, not knowing that he was speaking against God. He calls himself a persecutor. He calls himself a violent man. Um, He even uses words that were part of kind of the vocabulary that would be used for really um, uncivilized and barbaric kinds of violence that goes hand in hand with the way that people lash out when they are insecure and fearful. And he also makes sure that we know that just because he had a high level of commitment to the Torah, the law, it didn't mean that he was innocent. It didn't mean that he was living a moral life. He followed the law to the T. And yet in Acts chapter 8 and 9, we, we see what this guy looked like. He went by Saul then. That was his given name at birth. And Acts 8.3 says this, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison, separating families, locking people up, and throwing away the key, putting them on tribunal religious trial was like the beginning the very beginning stages of the inquisition way back when and yet jesus literally stopped him in his tracks he was on the way from jerusalem to damascus he had taken it upon himself to ask for special papers warrants of arrest from the high priest in Jerusalem so that he could go into synagogues and sort out who was a follower of the jesus way and then transfer them back for their punishment. No one asked him to do this. He took it upon himself to defend God in this way. And I think that we see in Paul, Paul's conversion as a kind of liberation, a kind of freedom from this law 
obsessed, law-absorbed interpretation of life that made him think he had to defend God in the first place. And we should also take note that if we find ourselves in that position, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to feel like we're on a mission to defend God. So I can imagine Paul saying, it was through Christ Jesus that I was confronted with all of these old destructive patterns and I was freed from my obsession with laws and I was freed from trying to obtain human perfection. I was saved through this way of life. And now there are people, there are people who say they are preachers of the gospel who are peddling that very same way of life as salvation? Oh, no. No, 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 no. No. That has no place here. We are liberated through no work of our own, through no special achievement, and certainly not through following the law to perfection. We are saved from that way of life, Paul says. And as Paul reveals his own testimony with passion and gratitude, just like it was yesterday instead of 30 years prior, I think it's important to us that we don't just hear Paul's story as kind of one in the long line of succession of church camp testimonials. Has anyone else had experience with church camp testimonials? They get worse and worse. (laughs) I mean, the former way of life gets worse and worse. The first person is saved from drugs, which is good. I'm so glad. But the second person is saved from drugs and pornography. And then the third person is saved from drugs and alcohol and pornography and, 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 and it just, like, it's like a one-upmanship in the reverse. It's so weird. And I think we could attempt to read Paul through this lens and see that he's like in a weird backwards way, like proud of how terrible he was or something. But no, this story, yes, it is about Paul and it is Paul's story, but you know why Paul tells it? Not to tell about Paul. Paul tells Paul's story to tell about God. His own story is proof of the gospel that he preaches, of the gospel that is preached. And it says that there is a priority not in how much you know, but in relationship and in faith with Jesus Christ because Paul knew it all and was working against God. He puts in Paul's story, we can't hear it and not have Christ at the center. A very human, a very Earthic, a very, a very earthy, a very non-esoteric academic story. And we hear Paul's amazement looking back on his own story. And it's almost like we can hear his recollection of those events decades before in his life. And he sees even more clearly in hindsight than he did at the time that the divine initiative of God to seek him out and to rescue him, but not only to rescue Paul, to rescue all of us. God is on display here. 
Paul proudly pushes God to the forefront and says, if God can act this way to me, then God can act this way and does act this way to us all. But it's hard for us sometimes to rely on stories, right? Stories provide rich textual detail and and they provide color and um, there's context and there's uh, complexity. We love stories for that. But sometimes we want a shorthand, right? Sometimes we just want to get to brass tacks. We want the bare bones. We want the 144 characters. What is tweetable about this? What is the sound bite that we can get people to watch thousands of times? This is human. But it seems that in the way that the church was growing and the way that the gospel was being spread, some corners were getting cut. And maybe people were latching on to the wrong 144 characters. If you focus on the wrong detail of the picture and you make that the main point, you can go a whole lot of wrong directions. And so Paul says, if you're going to, if you need a trustworthy saying, if you need a soundbite, if you need to find the smallest bit of DNA that you can build the rest of the truth off of, let it be this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We don't really like that word much anymore. I don't like that word. Sinners has a lot of negative connotations. But Paul is offering himself in this picture. Paul says, this is how Christ operated in my life, and it's how he operates in all of us. So when we hear it, we hear that Christ Jesus, the appointed Messiah, the Lord, the King, promised one to fulfill God's plan for Jews and Gentiles alike. This one came did not wait for us to come to him, but came into the world. Human, earthiness, raw, incarnate. And he came not to point fingers, not to teach high-minded ideals and a special set of categorical truths that everyone needs to abide by. He came into the world to save, to rescue, to redeem, to point in the right direction, to gather to himself, to put things back together as they should be. And who did he come to do this for? The sinners. Whether we like that word or not, it is those who are hungry and thirsty for what they cannot provide for themselves. It is those who are out of step. It is those who are living in chaos, whether they try hard or not at all. It is those who can't tell up from down, no matter how much they know or not. Paul is a perfect case in point. It is those who mistake dark for light. It is those who unknowingly work against God and against all of humanity. It is all of us who, Jesus says, know not what they do. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And for Paul, this truth is not textbook. It's his story. It's a summation of his own life events. And it is telling not only of Paul, but also of God, and also the mission that the church is called to. One of my favorite movies is called You've Got Mail, circa 1998, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I just, I might go home after church and watch it tonight. I just <laughs> love it so much. Um, but there's a scene, there they are. There's a scene where um, Kathleen Kelly, played by Meg Ryan, um, is fighting for the survival of her little locally owned bookshop while Joe Fox runs a big kind of Barnes & Noble-esque uh, store that is muscling her out of business. And there's a dialogue that, in which he is saying, hey, it's not personal, it's just business. These are just good business principles. Don't, it's not personal. And Kathleen Kelly says, why, why do people keep saying that? I am so sick of people saying that it's not personal. She says, Whatever else anything is, it ought to begin by being personal. And I actually think that Paul completely agrees. We might not prefer things to be so personal. Our own emotions and our experiences, ideas and relationships, they, the, they muddy the water and they make decision-making even harder. When it's personal, we have strong feelings. We have strong opinions. When it's personal, we carry shame sometimes of the old self or even the new self who can't quite get it right, so we think. And yet, there seems no other way offered to us. It has come to us, this good news of gospel, has come to us as personal, infleshed, the incarnate one who himself had experiences and emotions and relationships too. And we can't just boil it down to do's and don'ts and facts and figures. We can't just cut out all of the emotional aspects and all of the personal stories, and we can't just narrow it down to figures or a timeline lined up on a page because the more we do, the further we get away from the core truth and the freeing message of the gospel, which Paul says, hey, if it happened to me, it's going to happen for everybody else. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and me, the first, the foremost, the prime example so yes, Paul is writing to Timothy about the necessity of keeping the preaching, the full truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ as brave and faithful and persistent. But this isn't just a leadership book. This isn't just a, a how-to manual or a business principles class. This is deeply personal. 
Paul's defining experience of transformation. I mean, it, was, it, it literally forged something in him. It provided inner strength and discernment that he needed for his own brave actions throughout his ministry. And he's offering that not only to Timothy, but to all of us. Because being brave is not the same thing as being foolhardy or arrogant. It is not the same thing as walking around with a can-do swagger. Being brave in the Jesus way is knowing when and why and how to push through resistance and doing it with courage Jesusly, which that last part might just be the hardest bit. Staying on course in the Jesus way is a very brave thing to do. And there's no other way to do it without the personal transformation that forges and embeds bravery deep within us. It's all part of the same thing. Our experience shapes us and guides us and is the fire in our bellies to help us make these decisions as we move forward. Last week, as Pastor Chris talked with us about our common vision, that we are not all the same, but we are all ready for transformation. I thought of these things. We don't always know what the gospel will invite or compel us to do when we start the journey. But whatever the gospel compels us to do, it must, it has to begin as deeply personal. This is what sustains us and fuels us and keeps the message authentic. And it, this is what keeps us from being self-absorbed and elitist. We are people of hope and transformation that live the way of Jesus. That's who we are. And then as that is who we are, that's all that we know how to do, offer hope and transformation to others that they may live the way of Jesus. And when we remember and when we share our story together, which is one of the reasons why we do every single week, when we remember this, it is not just sharing our own story. It is sharing God's story. And like Paul, we are led into worship of the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies, the one who is God alone, this one who gives it all and risks so much in this way of love. It stems from a place of deeply personal experience and thought and emotion and gratitude, deep gratitude. And so before we come to the table that we call, thank you, the Eucharist table, I want to invite us just to ponder for a few moments this phrase that the Church of Ancient offers us. It will be on the wall for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
And I invite you to consider what does this mean? Not like textbook, what does it mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean in you? Does it mean something now that's different than what it meant a while ago? And it's okay if the answer is, I don't know if this means anything to me. There's room for that. But I think we have to begin with pondering what stirs in our hearts, what memories come up, what emotions are present. And let's ponder together as our servers come to prepare the table for us.